Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. Um, My job here is to find the top people in whatever field I'm talking to them in. So here we have uh, virology, and I definitely think I have someone that's incredibly distinguished in the field. It's uh, Frank Ryan. He's written a book called Virolution, amongst others. His new book is called Virus Sphere which I just finished and uh, is very timely, unfortunately, now with the uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus. Um, he's a lecturer, honorary senior lecturer at the Department of Medical Education, University of Sheffield in the UK. And we're going to be talking uh, not about probably the customary things you've heard about SARS-CoV-2, but what Frank terms, um, I believe, aggressive symbiosis. He, he appears to see viruses not as parasites, but as symbionts. And I'll let him express that because he can do it better than I can. But Frank, thanks for coming again. How are you doing? I'm fine, thanks. And can I just tell you, you might not realize it, but today is publication date of the paperback of Virusphere. <laughs> of all, oh, right. you know, it's just accidental, but there you go. It's it's kind of just timely, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, and I, I can tell listeners, like, you know, through all my interviews, I do have a pretty strong background now, and I can understand, you know, really scientific topics, but that wasn't needed for a lot of your book. It was really clearly written. It was excellent. And I think uh, I advise you. readers to get it and not be afraid of reading it. It's, it's really good. So thank you very much. Yeah. But Frank, so I, I wanted to ask you, so you talk about viruses as being symbionts. Yes. Can you define what a symbiont is and why do you have that perspective on it? Well, when I, when I was young, when I was a, a, a medical student and soon after I qualified and I worked with viruses, even as a medical student, viruses were, classified as genetic parasites. In other words, they were obligate parasites. And to be honest, as time has gone by, and as we've learned more about viruses, and as evolutionary biology has also progressed, uh, we've come to realize that that's much too simplistic and confining a term. Parasitism essentially defined by an organism lives at the expense of another organism and gives nothing. That's now, some viruses are parasites, and I'd say COVID-19 is doing a pretty good job at the moment of behaving parasitically. I can't deny that. But if you look at viruses as a whole, and there are, ve- there are vast numbers of different viruses, they show a very wide range of what you call interaction with the host. And the interactions vary from at one extreme, it's just pure parasitism. At the other extreme, it's uh, altruism or you know, mutualistic symbiosis is another word for that. And in the middle, you've got something they call commensals. In other words, viruses that live off the host in the sense that they need the host to replicate, but they don't actually cause any harm to the host. And very often, when a virus emerges like this, if you chase it back, you find it. You'll not always, but very often find that the virus doesn't actually cause disease in its host, but replicates with it, and it tends to cause the disease for the first time when it jumps to a new species. And that's something we could talk about. Yeah. But uh, what's an example of a virus that is actually beneficial to us? Well, I know I, there are some that we, we wouldn't exist without. 
That's true. Look at one of the worst epidemic viruses we've seen in our life, and that's HIV-1, the cause of AIDS. Now, you couldn't say, the natural thing would be to look at that and say, well, that's a pure parasite. Yet, even at the height of the AIDS uh, epidemic, when people, there was a big study, big multi-center study, looked at it, and they didn't ask the question of, is it a parasite, is it not? What they actually asked is, what aspects of the virus were changing or being changed or subject to change as part of its interaction with the human species. And then they asked, what part of the human species is changing as a result of the virus infection? And when they looked at it, it was certain HLA-B types. That's a, that's a gene in the histocompatibility complex. In other words, the gene that plays a part both in our kind of reaction to infection, but also in the way we recognize self. And they, they showed with the, the level of significance was massive, you know, this off into the future, that the virus changed the, uh, a specific type of HLA-B type antigen in humans and reduced it. And the, and the HLA-B antigen, that same thing, was the most th- likely aspect of the human genome to actually change the course of evolution of the virus. So what's, and this, the significance was, was off the scale, so there's no doubt it was highly significant. And what you're actually seeing, even in the height of the AIDS epidemic, which is a horrible epidemic, horribly pathological, and you know, you could say parasitic on the part of the virus, both virus and human genome were actually altering each other's evolution. Now, well, how did the um, <clears throat> how did the virus alter the human genome? You, you said well, it modified the HLA-B. But sure. What it, well, what would have happened, and I can explain that again with a different analogy, and we can move back to what if 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 we didn't have modern medicine. Let's say people were living somewhere around the uh, <laughs> the rainforest in Africa, back as our ancestors, I believe, have lived, uh, and they were infected with that virus. What would have happened? A certain type of HLA-B antigen would have been eliminated from the human genome. It would have changed the human genome in that way. But also the virus itself would have changed in a way with that. And in time, that virus would have been replicating us, or what was left of the human, which would have increased again, of course, in population. But now we're carrying a virus, HIV-1 virus, but the virus no longer causes disease. Now you can say, what's the advantage to humans of that? Now I'll then ask you, to move to a completely different scenario, and you'll see the advantage. If we looked at a virus-host interaction from the neo-Darwinian perspective, what they would say is that the virus evolves separate entities. Natural selection operates on each as separate entities. I don't deny that. I think that's true. But if you now introduce the symbiotic perspective, what you're looking at is you're looking at these altering each other and acting selfishly, if you want, but... There's something else, and that's the symbiotic interaction of the two. You've now got two which are permanently married to each other, and the what now selection has now the possibility, if you look at it from the symbiotic perspective, of acting at a third level. And the third level is the interaction, the partnership. And in fact, that's what symbiosis calls them, the evolving partner. And the term for the partnership is a holobiont. That's the... So if I could restate this, a virus radically accelerates um, selection pressure and the survivors now, the virus becomes part of them. And now the combined whole, the virus plus person, 
yes. called the holobiont. Now yes. that continues to go through evolution that, and selection pressure, right. etc. If they remain separate organisms, such as the virus just replicates within the within the body of the person, then evolution will still be acting at on both host and virus as separate entities, but it'll also be interacting uh, in a third, uh, on a third level. And the third level is the level of the whole group, the interaction. And now let, let me give you an example. In the 1950s, Australia was suffering a plague of rabbit. There were millions and millions of rabbits and they were destroying all of the agricultural fields. And so the Australians decided we're going to bring in a virus and we're going to deliberately cause a plague of rabbits using a virus. And what they, they knew, every, people were aware already that there was a rabbit that lived in Brazil, it was native to Brazil, called the Brazilian wood rabbit. That wood rabbit had a virus that was co-evolving. Co-evolving is the virological term for symbiosis. And it had a virus that was co-evolving. This relationship had either developed into or had always been a a stable relationship and the virus didn't cause the death of the rabbits. It, it caused no real disease apart from a few little pimpled skin. Hmm. Now what they did is they brought that virus into Australia and injected it into say 30 or 50 rabbits. If they had brought the Brazilian wood rabbit, think about that, into Australia, what would have happened? But they didn't. They brought would it have taken over probably. Yeah. The, Australian, the rabbit in Australia would now be the Australian wood rabbit and selection would have operated at the level of the interaction of rabbit and virus. Because the thing that would have taken over Australia was the Brazilian wood rabbit plus its virus. It's a mitosis, but because they didn't do that, you've got the virus hopping species. And remember when it hops species, it's, it's moving into a, a genome or a species that it's never encountered before. And it, you can't predict what the virus would do. But let me put it, you know what it did, it slate wiped the Australian rabbits within three months of the rainy season starting because this was a virus that was spread by biting insects. Then within three, three months of the spread of myxomatosis through biting insects, 99.8% of the Australian rabbits were dead. 0.2% survived. But the Brazilian wood rabbit hadn't come with its partner. So the Australian rabbits, now that 0.2% had some resistance to the virus. What resistance is, means is it, they could live with the presence of the virus, where they were sickly. What happened is rabbits reproduce about three times a year. Within 20 years, you've got now an expanding rabbit population again in Australia. And you know what they're expanding with? A new partner, mm. myxomatosis virus, which is now no longer causing disease. You see how you've got, to, you've got to think of the partnership. Now, if you get a virus such as HIV-1, now this, well, let's, let's say, a different retrovirus. HIV-1 is a retrovirus. With our human species has been infected with a whole series, probably something like 200 different retroviruses over the fullness of our evolution, going way past even the stage where we we we, we shared a common uh, antecedent with uh, chimpanzees and so on, going back way into the future, into the distant past. As yeah, that's, that's, that's what I was going to ask you. So there's at least 100 or 200 times that a virus has attacked yes. humans or their, their antecedents. De definitely become attacked a part them. Of them. Become a part of them. And yeah, that's right. Because we, the, we have co-evolved with these retroviruses. Now, retroviruses are very different from a lot of other viruses in that the way in which a retrovirus 
reproduces is that it has a target cell, which is, for instance, in AIDS, it was a, a T4 lymphocyte, but it actually involved, it infected a, a number of different targets. Now, what it does in the targets, it's an RNA virus. You know, you, you, our genes are DNA, but there's a sister molecule called RNA. I call it the Cinderella molecule for reasons in the books, that the RNA is very unstable. DNA is very stable, so it's a perfect molecule for the memory that you need in heredity. RNA isn't such a perfect molecule because when it copies, it makes mistakes, more, much more so than DNA. But DNA can't copy itself anyway. It needs enzymes. Now, if, when the retrovirus enters a cell, it has its own enzymes, okay? Uh, one of these is, uh, converts the retrovirus's R virus's RNA into the DNA homologue, in other words, to, the, to its equivalent, the DNA. If you say GACT and GACU, GACT, the thymine of DNA is converted to uracil in RNA, otherwise the three other bases are the same. Now, it, it, it converts the RNA to its equivalent DNA. Then a second viral enzyme called integrase actually inserts the viral genome, the whole of the viral, viral genome, into the chromosome of the host. It picks places in the chromosome at random, and so they're going to any chromosome. And what happens when you get an infection is you accumulate virus inserts, and these are whole genome viral inserts all over the chromosome. That's happening right now uh, in Australia. You know, we've. Well, I, have, I have a quick question. I have a quick question for you here. So this, yeah. so based on your book, it looks like you know you believe viruses are alive, and I believe that they're either alive or they're contingently alive. Meaning when they enter into a target cell, they come alive. Um, is there a decision being made by the virus? Is there an evaluation? It, it the virus is saying, I'm going to be a parasite or I'm now going to be symbiotic. No, like I how, think really, yeah, how does that happen? It, what, it, the, a virus can't think. It can only do what its genome instructs it to do. And so the relationship develops. The thing that controls the relation, the development of the relationship between a virus and its host is only one thing does that, and that's evolutionary. So whatever drives is driving the reproduction of the virus and the, the reproduction of the host and the partnership are evolutionary forces. And that's all, that's all that drives them. But if you get what we're seeing now with the retrovirus, that you're getting a genomic union between the virus and host, now you get a really big change in the level of action of natural selection. Nat natural selection now must act at the level of the whole of wild because that's the only thing there for it to act on. As, mm. And natural selection will now select the whole of biomes, the best chance of survival. And of course, it'll be survival of virus plus host because they're both united in a single genome. And I call this a holobiontic genome, a genome that's made up of two or more quite separate and very different evolutionary lineages. And so now selection will select a gene or change in a gene that, that enhances the survival of the holobiont. Now remember, retroviruses have little bits at the end of the genome called LTRs. The LTRs are the regulatory regions of the virus. They're very powerful. They're lying next in our human genome, sitting next to human genes and human genetic sequence. If they land near the human genome, they, they have a tendency to take over the regulation, the promotion of the genes. And if the viral promoter is better or more efficient at doing what it's doing, 
what does selection select? It selects the viral control of the gene. Huge numbers of human genes have viral promoters sitting next to them, which are controlling them. For instance, uh, the globin, you know glo- hemoglobin in your blood? Yeah. The globin is a protein molecule. Three out of the four the key regulators of globin, globin production in human are viral. Have viral components done to hemoglobin? How have they improved it? Well, I don't know. Well, we have. We just have to assume that somehow or other they were better at it than the okay. precursors, which were human. We don't. Know, that happened long ago. Right. But but there are all sorts of other strange things. People tend to think. Well, look at all these retroviral inserts. They, uh, you know, some of them have lost the genes. All you got left is the regulatory regions with an empty or destroyed genetic thing in between. But actually, it doesn't matter. The regulators continue to do so. There was one of a, a virus called HERV H. HERV stands for Human Endogenous Retrovirus, right? HERV. And HERV H has got about 210 inserts into the human genome. Now, if, if you people say, well, look at them, all those HERV inserts, they're genetic regions, you know, the, very, the code for the envelope and this part and that part of the virus, they're all silenced by mutations of various sorts. So those inserts must be junk because they couldn't be doing anything. Not so, because uh, people working with, uh, with the early drugs they had for AIDS, when they treated the very early embryos of mice to a, a drug that was used in the treatment of AIDS, the embryos, embryos stopped developing. They, then they discovered that what they're doing, we now know one of the many things that these viral things are doing, and what they're doing, the HERV-H group are doing, is they're controlling the embryo, including the human embryo, in the very earliest stages. You know when you get a ball of cell? Yeah. All, and each cell is pluripotent. So if you just took one cell out, it would form a whole human being. They're pluripotent. Right. If you treat an embryo of a mouse, a mouse say, at that stage to uh, a drug or something that stops those herbs working, and they can use a thing called RNAi, which will switch off those herbs. That embryo turns into, every cell in the embryo turns into a fibroblast, and embryological development completely ends. So we know now that one of the things these do, because we're still discovering this, it's all very new, we're discovering that what the herb H does is it maintains the embryo of the mammal in that state of pluripotency. And it's very important it remains pluripotent for those early days, you know, of the developing embryo. And there are others doing all sorts of strange stuff like that. So in other words, they're part of us. Now let me tell you another story. <clears throat> well, quick, quick question before the next story. Okay, go on. Do, do only retroviruses endogenize into our DNA? No, we're beginning Well, they're the best at it, but other viruses do it. And, and different ones do in different sort of animals. But in mammals, the most important by far are the retrovirus. Now, we knew we, what happened is some American researchers discovered a lot, quite a while ago now that, the, you know, the envelope gene is, is the covering of the retrovirus. And the, uh, they discovered that the envelope gene of a certain retrovirus, right? I won't tell you what it stands for. ELV, WV1 is the name. They have these weird names which don't mean much to anyone. The envelope gene of that retrovirus actually fuses all the lining cells of the placenta into a single monolayer. So there are no, there are no sort of uh, breaks. You know, where cells normally you have junctions between the cells. And that 
that's an extremely fine membrane. So everything coming in from the mother to the fetus to feed it, and all the ways going out from the fetus to the mother has got to pass through that membrane. He, he, they discovered, these guys, that the thing that fuses all those cells together is the envelope gene of the retrovirus, ERVW. So in other words, the virus is now giving the human reproduction an ability it didn't have before. That's a viral ability. Our, our human genome <clears throat> wouldn't normally have that fusion ability. It's called fusogenic ability. Only viruses have that. So that was a big discovery. Yeah, I then think you said in your book that there, there would be no placental mammals without that's, that's, one and two, right? Well, that's true because they found a second retrovirus sits up, its envelope gene sits just under the surface of the placenta and it blocks the maternal rejection of the fetus Fetus has got uh, half its antigens come from the father. They're alien to the mother. The mother's immunity, if it detected them, would destroy the fetus. But there's a second virus that lies under the membrane uh, called FRD, and that one blocks maternal immunity getting to the fetus. Now, so we knew, all right, in humans, two viruses are vitally important to placental function. When they go wrong, you get trouble with pregnancy. They were very hard to understand some of these pregnancy disorders. Now we begin to understand them because it's to do with the viruses. That's why it was so hard to grasp. But then they began to look at other uh, placental mammals. And this is really recent. Every single placental mammal they examined, whales, dolphins, uh, you know, ferrets, mice, horses, cattle, everything. Every single placental elephants, every single placental mammal they examined had a, it's the, the gene that fuses the membrane is called syncytin 1. The gene that controls the immunity of the mother getting things is called syncytin 2. They found a syncytin 1 and a syncytin 2 in every single mammal on Earth. So they're obviously very important to the mammals, but then the question was, did the <clears throat> placentation is vital for a human for a human life reproduction and everything else? They, could it be that maybe placentation evolved and then the virus has improved upon it? That was a possibility. And in fact, many have, th have thought it's such a big thing for us that that's probably what happened. But in the that's last amazing. few years, three or four years only, they've now discovered that in marsupials, which don't have some of them have temporary placentation, just lasting a few days as the because it's a fetus that comes down and the vesupials will go into the pouch. Right, Whereas the right. fetus is coming down, and some of them it just delays for a while in the overduct or whatever, and a little membrane begins to form, and then it stops and it comes down. So it ages just a little bit on its way down. When they hmm. examined them, they found exactly the same thing. Two viruses, syncytin 1, syncytin 2, did that little tiny brief presentation. In other words, that now points to the fact that no viruses, no endogenous retroviruses, no placentation, no placental mammals, and we're placental mammals. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, uh, see well, this, this, yeah, this, I wanted to go back to your term of aggressive symbiosis. So I guess in plainer terms, aggressive symbiosis means the virus is, I'm just anthropomorphizing, but the virus is like a bully. Like, you either partner with me or you die. So yeah, well, is that what you mean by aggressive well, but, symbiosis? Yeah. One of, one of the things I remember, I got, I've got a friend called Louis Villarreal, who's a professor at uh, UC Irvine. He's one of the most prominent uh, evolutionary virologists in the world. When I first started saying viruses are symbiont, he, he was a little resistant. But it was only when I introduced the concept of aggressive that the symbiosis with viruses nearly always contains at some stage in the development of the partnership 
aggression by the viruses. Now, one of the ways it uh, causes aggression is like, well, like when it established in the rabbits, it was exceedingly aggressive. But right. because there was no other host there, only the rabbits, in time the virus and host came to live with one another. But it, it, what it did is through the aggression of its attack, if you want from the rabbits, the epidemic of rabbits, the virus was selecting a genotype. and the, It's always selecting at the level of the part of the genome that deals with friend or foe, you know, foreign or dealing with infection. And the virus selected a subtype of the genome of rabbits that could live with it, which was only 0.2% of that rabbit population to start with. In other words, it's actually picked a little subgroup of the rabbit population that can live with it. All the rest got slightly. And then the virus and host co-evolve with each other. So it begins with extreme aggression while the virus is trying to find a portion, if you want, of the host you know, species genome that it can live with. That's exactly what you're seeing, you know, with the coronavirus and with any other virus. When they enter a new host, they'll be very aggressive to the ones who can't live with it. Gradually, they'll, that, that type of genome of the people that can't live with it will be wiped out. And the virus selects for a different, some, it could be a majority, it could be a tiny minority of the rabbits, but it's choosing its running partner. And it's choosing it at the genetic level, and it employs aggression in order to do so. I'll give you another example. We've got uh, in Britain at the moment. We had red squirrels were native to the UK. Grey squirrels are native to the Americas. Some people brought the grey squirrels over to Britain. I don't know why, but they were carrying a virus, <laughs> a pox. This time, a pox virus. That virus is wiping out the red squirrels here right now. I heard koala is the same thing that's happening well, in Australia. Well, I was going to talk about Australia. Yeah, the koalas, if the koalas on an island off the coast of Australia were put there about 120 years ago, and none of them have the koala retros, none of them. So they, obviously it's arrived since then. But now it's been coming down from the north of eastern Australia to the south, and all of the koalas in the north, it spreads sexually. It's a retrovirus, and that's what they do. This. They, it's Every koala in the northern area now has, is, contains the retrovirus. Halfway down, about two-thirds, and at the bottom, one-third. In other words, it's an epidemic that's been sweeping down from the north over a little more than a century. The koalas, some koalas have already got a hundred retroviral inserts. In I, want to, I want to ask you a question here. So <clears throat> I see three, so far, three possibilities. I know they're not all the possibilities, but one is the virus enters a creature. It's not compatible. It kills it. Yeah. Two is the virus enters a creature. It's, it's compatible enough so that the creature is sickened but can live with the virus. And yes. is I don't know if three is separate. Three, maybe the virus enters the creature. It's either compatible or not, but it endogenizes into its DNA. Yeah. Why would, why would a virus endogenize into uh, a creature's well, DNA? Because essentially that's the end of the line for that virus. I mean, it continues yeah. in a way, but not as a... A separate entity. Yeah, viruses will sacrifice themselves for the for the partnership. The uh, let me think of a decent example. Yeah, okay. It's pretty altruistic Insects. of yeah, them. You know? you know, no, it isn't <laughs> altruistic. It's it's the evolutionary forces always. But uh, the, it, among the insects, have you heard of the hunting wasps or parasitic wasps? They're the, the ones that lay their uh, they lay their eggs inside the caterpillars. Yeah, yeah that's horrible. That's <laughs> and, terrible. and in spiders and everything else. But think of it. Here you got a you got a wasp, right? It's got a virus that's either living in its ovarian tissue or it's actually, and you were asking me about endogenized, or it's actually endogenized into the wasp genome. At least half of them have gone into the wasp genome. When the wasp wants to lay its eggs, the virus emerges from the uh, 
uh, wasp ovary to coat the egg on the way out. Then the wasp lays its egg, say in a caterpillar prey. Now in the caterpillar prey, think about this, that virus, which has actually only been co-evolving with a wasp, actually takes over the metamorphosis of the caterpillar and prevents its development into a butterfly or whatever it to be. It also then tells the, the caterpillar genome, you're going to secrete sugars and other stuff to feed the larvae that develop from the eggs that are injected, right? Then the larvae eat the wasp from the inside. You know the film Alien? Yeah, I know. It was I know. based on That's this. It's terrible. Really? It was based on this, based on this relationship amongst the oh. insects. And the, the caterpillar doesn't develop. It just feeds the wasp. And even the virus even suppresses a caterpillar's, uh, endoc- caterpillar's immune system would destroy those eggs easily. But the, the virus actually prevents the caterpillar's immune system from doing so. Then when the caterpillar ruptures and all the larvae come out and develop into wasps, but the virus in, the, in that caterpillar dies with it. When the caterpillar dies, the viruses die with it. But of course, it hasn't died back in the insect. They, they, you've got to think of the relationship, not the virus, the relationship. Huh. The relationship is still there in the insect. And it succeeded in producing more wasps, which will be carrying more viruses in their ovaries. But that's weird because the virus has endogenized into the wasp. Yeah. It seems to be just a partner that is there for the wasp, you know, itself. Yeah. But then in this instance, the virus seems to take back on its original role and act independently of the wasp itself. But then again, not. It's just strange. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, in this, well, in this, in this instance, the virus is, is inside the wasp, either in the wasp's genome or it's in the ovaries close to where the eggs are laid. But it never becomes part of the wasp's makeup. In other words, it doesn't oh, okay. express itself as part of the wasp's makeup. So, okay. I, I have a, a question for you. I don't know if is, this is answerable. I've I've learned a lot about um, extracellular vesicles, and yeah. you know, there's RNA in them, and they can change gene expression of their targets, and et cetera, et cetera. It seems like EVs are very virus-like. So it seems like perhaps there's a class of viruses that are actually tools of cells. They act similar ways to viruses, maybe not as aggressively, but they seem to have a lot of the hallmarks of being similar. I, I, yeah, you may be right. I just I don't know the answer to that, but I can tell you something very interesting. And now we're coming back to the Cinderella molecule. That okay. if, if imagine that primal Earth, you know, a very hot, uh, very uh, aggressive and tough landscape for anything to survive in. Now, how could life begin? Now, there are all sorts of it's a great mystery, and I don't don't pretend to have anything like the answers. But I have one little piece of the answer. If one of the things that must take place for life to begin is you must have a beginning of what will eventually become the genome of life on Earth. Now, if you form a string of the nucleotides that make up DNA, what happens? Nothing. It can't copy itself. DNA needs DNA polymerase in order to replicate. And polymerase is a very complex enzyme. But if you form a string of, say, 80 or 60 or something RNA uh, nucleotide, very similar to DNA, but just that one little change from time into uracil. RNA is capable of acting as its own enzyme and replicating. Now you've got a hint of something that might have happened very long ago on the very primal Earth. The other thing about viruses, now if you construct artificial viruses, if you make sort of self-replicating, say self-replicating RNA entities, you can make them in the lab, you can do it by computer modeling, 
and it can look inside the blood of patients suffering from things like AIDS, watching the behavior of the viruses. In every case, you get smaller pieces of RNA that parasitize, if you use that word, the replicate. So as soon as you create self-replicating entities, smaller entities hitch a ride and take advantage. And I think you're seeing, you're seeing the beginning of the virus-host relationship, even at that level. And that suggests very strongly to me that the, the first evolving cells, protocells, we call them, much simpler than our cells, were almost certainly coded by RNA, not DNA, because the RNA could copy it. You had the first prototype viruses were the little things that hitched a ride and, a ride and, and used it to replicate, because they'd replicate so once they hitched a ride. With how, a, could there be a, how could there be a drive to do that in such a simple arrangement of molecules? You know, you know, you know how natural selection, a, a replicant that replicated better would be chosen. A replicant that didn't would be selected against. So you've got what you do when you do it on the computer simulations or you do it with actual little RNA uh, molecules and all that, you actually find natural selection operating just as you'd expect. Yeah, that's amazing. Is. Um, there, is. there are viruses. So essentially there are viruses that parasitize other viruses or endogenize into other viruses too? Yes, yes, they do. They can hitch a ride on viruses and do that too. So they don't actually need cellular life forms. But for the most part, of course, viruses do. And what it is, I, I, I've written chapters. I haven't sent you any of these. These are chapters for very highly technical books. You know, and you just finished another one for a book for nature. And in this, I've looked from the beginning, this sort of prototypical beginning of life on Earth right up to the present. And when you examine it, like the evolution of photosynthesis, the evolution of this, that, all these big steps in life. At every step, because you've got things on Earth that are still at that step, they haven't come forward. In every single step, when you look at them, you find interacting viruses. So I think they played a very important role doing the usual virus thing in changing hosts and contributing in an aggressive way. (laughs) It's an aggressive symbiosis with all of life has, has developed with viruses interacting with hosts from the, those very early uh, kind of RNA viruses, I'm sure that the DNA viruses, which are more complex, would have involved viruses taking bits from hosts and, and so on. So viruses would have used hosts to uh, speed up the viral evolution. But the but Tim, what happens when a um, when a virus is inside of a cell? Why, why is there a latency period? You think you know, like with the coronavirus or the flu or whatever, why, why would there be a latency period? How is the virus I, 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 knowing when to attack? No, I think what happens is the virus enters the, for instance, a coronavirus only goes into the cytoplasm of the cell. It doesn't go into the nucleus. And the first gene, the first viral gene to be expressed, it, it causes, the, vir- the viruses have their own gene. And the, fir- the virus has its own you know, I was talking about DNA polymerase. Remember the polymerase chain reaction, frenzy. But the virus has its own RNA. So what the virus does is it, as soon as it enters the cytoplasm of the cell, you get all the little factories called ribosomes that make protein. So the virus latches onto the ribosomes, and it'll be all over the place. Billions of viruses doing this. They latch onto the ribosome, and they instruct the ribosome to make the first first viral protein called RNA polymerase. Once the ribosome, because they've, they've now taken it over, you know, the ribosomes, once the ribosome makes RNA polymerase, what does that do? It copies the viral genome. <laughs> so you know immediately from the first step, the second step is that 
protein that's formed under the virus's own instructions will now replicate and replicate and replicate viral uh, RNA genome. That's all that's necessary. It doesn't need to, to, to touch the nucleus at all. It's all, all done in the cytoplasm of the cell. And the entire virus is assembled there in the cytoplasm of the cell. And then it goes out, back out through the membrane into the mucousy kind of irritated secretions outside and is coughed up and out as little globules of liquid for other people to breathe in. Why would, why would it take X number of days for a given virus? I, to I think that... I think that the reason for that, I think, you know, I might be wrong, but I would think that the likelihood is, is that it begins to happen. There, there aren't many viruses at first, and gradually the viruses build up and build up and build up until you get very large numbers and billions now coming out with every cough. And at that stage, they're highly infectious. Well, you know, you know, it's funny. I just, I always pictured one virus entering into one cell, but isn't yeah. that... No, no. I would think. Oh no, yeah. To the to the virus, the cell. It isn't the size of a double decker bus. It's much bigger. It's the size of a ship. The cell is the size of a ship to a virus. So you'd have lots of them along the uh, margin of the cell. But we, I used to work with bacterial viruses, and if you look at a bacterium that's infected by viruses, you'll find a number of viruses all over the bacteria uh, infecting you. They do it multiply. It would be interesting if it was like sperm and egg. You know, once a virus enters a cell, it changes the cell membrane to prevent other viruses from entering into it. Yeah. It, well, it might prevent other viruses, but it doesn't prevent others of, other, others of its own strain entering, put it that way. The, the, it, they work together. Oh, that's the other thing. There's all sorts of things I haven't told you, is that there's something weird about RNA viruses and RNA uh, self-replicators, even much simpler things. When, when RNA self-replicates, you get like a, an, a, an important mutation. You know, it's replicating. Imagine it's there and it, it, they're moving out with little chains, and then you get an important mutation here. After that mutation, all the viruses that has that mutation act as a swarm. I don't, I don't even understand it. They act as a swarm, and anything within that swarm, even if it's slightly defective, is much more likely to reproduce. In other words, it's selected for because it's a member of the swarm. It's something peculiar to RNA. Wait, wait, where, where do the swarms occur? Inside of cells or just inside, outside? In, inside of an infected host. So it, in AIDS, it's in the bloodstream. If you look inside the bloodstream of an AIDS-infected patient, you've got these tiny little swarms, and there's a group selection then for the swarm. So any member of the swarm, even if it was a bit defective, would actually have a greater chance of survival, be selected for, than a a solitary virus outside that was actually much stronger than it. And why that what happens, is, what, I don't what know. A swarm, what does a swarm look like, though? They, they would look just like the others, but, of course, genetically, they'd all possess that common mutation. No, but, is the, okay, is the swarm behavior happening with X number of viruses inside of cells in the host? Is it yes, a distributed yes. phenomena over... Yeah, it, it's, they're being selected for, so it, there's a selection happening at swarm level. Louis Villarreal thinks this is the beginning of a sort of intelligent behavior. It's very, very primitive. He thought about intelligent behavior at the level of chemical. I, I, I don't know. I just look at it with a certain amount of wonder. One of the other things people well, tell, tell us is viruses have evolved from cells. That can't possibly be true. This was a very common belief about a generation a little bit more ago. Actually, both viruses, the important genetic bits of viruses, the things that matter, the replication machinery, the pla- you know, the, the 
thing that that the capsid that contains the nucleus and holds everything in, all of those, they don't exist in any other life form other than viruses. They couldn't possibly have evolved from hosts. They do take things from hosts, but they give things to hosts as well. But they couldn't possibly have evolved all viruses as evolving from a little bit of host that escapes and goes out into the medium because they're not made up of host genes. The genes, most of the genes you find in viruses are not found in any other. When, when viruses are inside of cells of a host, do you think that they're causing the cellular machinery to send out, let's say, extracellular vesicles that are messengers for the virus? In the cells, so they can communicate amongst themselves. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know either. That's why I, I asked. I, I, well, <laughs> well, I'll tell you that I think that well, looking at how much we've learned in the last, say, twenty years about retroviruses and what they're doing with our genome, it just makes me sort of begin to realise that there's so much about viruses we still don't understand, and we're greatly underestimated because they're everywhere. They're in us, in all of our body cavities. They're in the air we breathe. You walk into the ocean, the ocean's full of viruses. You know that, I don't know whether I've described this before, but one of the things people have been doing is they've been looking at the oceans and counting. Now, these are viruses of bacteria in the ocean. Back, they do bacteria and also other ones called archaea. Archaea is a new thing that people have been evolved with for, for a single generation, but appear to be very important. They look like bacteria, but important genetic things in them aren't like bacteria. And very small organisms, these viruses are multiplying in them. Now the bacteria, well, let's say just look at the bacteria. The bacteria grow, you know, produce more and more and more by budding, uh, but they're all, they all contain viruses. And at a certain stage, and I don't know what's controlling it, what's signaling it or what, the viruses suddenly multiply inside the bacteria and the bacteria rupture, the bacteria cell ruptures and releases all the vast numbers of viruses into the water. The numbers of viruses in the ocean uh, exceed by a factor of 10 to 100 all other life forms on Earth, including bacteria. They're vast numbers. Now, if, you, if they weren't there, the oceans would be full of bacteria, so you wouldn't want to go into them. <laughs> the, so the, it's very important that they do this. You're acting to viruses do good. Well, they do, because not only do they keep the oceans clean of bacteria, but when the bacterial bodies rupture, they release all sorts of chemicals and things that are very important as the base of the food web of the ocean. So they're actually contributing in a vitally important way to the biosphere. And they're in every layer of the ocean, from the surface all the way down into the substrate at the bottom. They're not just in the surface. Yeah, people, I heard they're, they're everywhere. They're in soil and unbelievable amounts The air. soil is very new, and it's mainly American uh, biologists who've been studying this. They've been looking at plant viruses. You know, my friend Marilyn Rosink has been looking at plant viruses. One of the things she did, you know, you're asking me right at the beginning, are viruses parasitic? She actually wrote to me after she'd got her PhD because Louis examined her for her PhD and he said you ought to read Frank's virus field. And she got in touch with me and said, well, I'm going to test what you're saying. And she went out into Yellowstone Park because there was a, there were plants there that could survive the very dry condition, zerified. And they'd already knew that there were fungi within the actual bodies of the plants that somehow enabled the plants to survive xerophytic conditions. So it was a plant fungus symbiosis. And she, when she administered, she didn't know that if they contained virus or not, but she administered antiviral drugs to the plants. What do you think happened? They died. Mm-hmm. <laughs> then she investigated it further and found there were viruses in the fungus and the fungus itself so within the plant. It was a symbiosis within a symbiosis. That was written up for... Uh, uh, what you call it, the, the top magazine for biologists in America, not nature. The other. Well, anyway, 
that, that was published. The New England Journal or something? No, no, it was no, it was a general biological one. It come to be science. That's it. That okay. was published in, in Science. Right then, she did okay. something else. She actually, she said, "I've got to test now how important might uh, symbiosis be to the production of new species or even whole families of viruses." And she did a computer simula simulation, saying, "Would uh, symbiogenesis?" On mutation plus selection, which of them is more likely to give rise to new viruses? She found symbiogenesis would do it much more quickly, but natural selection plus mutation would do it as well, albeit more slowly and less efficient. Now, that was published in Nature here, which is the top journal in, in Britain for uh, biology. But then she took it further. She went out to Costa Rica and she picked plants that were healthy. A whole load of them, I don't know how many, but a large number of plants. And she examined the plants' presence of viruses. She found the viruses in 60 to 70%, if I remember correctly, of the plants. But these are healthy plants. How can viruses then be parasites? What are they doing in the plants? Nobody has the slightest idea, but they're not being parasitic. So how can, how can people, how can science use our understanding of viruses and their amazing diversity of genetic material to help our health well, I think they're, they're incredibly productive viruses so that there are aspects. People have, for instance, conducted experiments where they used viruses and they even used retroviruses in some of the early experiments to see if they could use them for genetic engineering. Well, the, the difficulty is they're very hard to control and they came up against problems where the viruses began to take over their own destiny and they didn't do what they wanted them to do. So oh. you've got to be very careful. Uh, working with viruses, I don't think you can use them in that sense. But I think if we looked at, uh, you know, how viruses can insert themselves into chromosomes or how viruses uh, work with the bacteria and organisms in soil, uh, how viruses work with the, uh, human, inside the human gut, for example. I think in time, because we just don't have the knowledge yet, but I'm sure that in time, people will start, begin to use that extraordinary power of viruses uh, to do things. But at the moment, we're being very cautious. If you use them, they might not continue to control them. But I think people are using aspects of them. They might take a viral gene for, and use that for some purpose. I'm sure if you said, use, uh, I'm sure if you Google the use of viral genes for medical health purposes or something like that, you'll get something comes up, people will be trying. So if, um, if viruses are alive and if people can create viruses, does that mean that people can create life? Uh, well, can, can they create viruses? Because you, all we're doing at the moment is we're using uh, what the viruses themselves have, have created over the extraordinary length of time that things have been evolving. If, if Even if you created a new virus, if you made DNA and made a new virus, and some, to some extent you'd be copying, wouldn't you, what nature did. I don't know whether you could say that you're creating life. You could certainly change life using viruses. You could change genomes using viruses. And so you could say that you're contributing to the creation of life. But you've got to be careful because remember that whatever you create will now be subject to the forces of natural selection. Let me put another thing to you, another scenario. We're right. talking, we started off talking about the coronavirus. Let us say there's, we'll say a bat. There's a bat out there in nature. It lives in a roost or it may be in a cave, maybe in trees and so on. Another bat comes along and begins to threaten its territory, maybe a more aggressive bat or something, and threatens that one. Each of those bats will contain anything up to about 16 or more viruses that are co-evolving. What if one of these bats had a virus that if it jumped to another bat was extremely aggressive, and what if the other didn't? Which of the bat plus virus 
symbiosis would survive. Mm, I see. Now you're beginning to see natural selection working at the level of the symbiosis when you think that through. And I think that that sort of behavior is commonplace in nature. We don't see it. We don't notice it because it doesn't involve a whole species changing. We're just local populations. And the, 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 the bat that contains the more aggressive viruses, not to it, but to rival, will survive. That's what you're seeing with the, uh, you know, I suppose with uh, squirrels here in the UK, and there are, there, I'm sure people would find many other examples of where uh, a virus on board one animal would be extremely dangerous to a potential rival. Now think of where some of these awful viruses for humans have come from. Where did AIDS come from? It came from the chimpanzee. It, people, when, when AIDS first appeared, people tried to infect chimpanzees with AIDS in order to use them as experimental subjects looking for the cure. No matter what they did with the chimpanzees, even when they suppressed its immunity, the virus refused to attack them because they're oh. the host. They're the host. So they couldn't make it. HIV-1 attack chimpanzees, it lives with them normally. And it's the chimpanzees is natural. And they could, they, yeah, so you see, now that hopped to us. And what were we doing to chimpanzees? Where did it come from? We think almost certainly it came from butchering of chimpanzees as bushmeat. Mm. What did the virus do? It attacked the aggressor of the chimpanzee? How could it know it, that it couldn't. We were... no, it's, no, it's an, an automatic reaction that was normally... Uh, uh, may have evolved in chimpanzees as part of its evolution in the rainforest for rivals in the rainforest. It would have evolved if, if there were other animals who were invading the chimpanzee's habitat that were similar enough, if you want, for the virus to hop. If it hopped, then it would be an advantage to the virus host consortium, if you want, the virus host, a whole yeah. while for, for it to be able to do that. And I think if you look around the world, you will see other regions. Well, Frank, Frank, we're just about out of time. I, I have one last question, if it's okay. Is there any instance of a virus de-endogenizing itself coming out of the DNA of a creature? Not, not that I know of, because once the virus has settled in there into the genome, it will change. And usually what you find is that maybe, for instance, in syncytin, you know, the, the viral uh, locus that codes for syncytin, uh, two of the three domains, viral domains of genes, have been silenced by a single insertion. Exactly the same thing has happened to the virus that codes for syncytin 2. There's an insertion between the LTR and the first two uh, viral domains, and that silences those two domains. So the only domain of the virus that remains expressible is the syncytin. So the natural selection tends to switch off the bits that are not good for the symbiosis and to retain and even develop the bits that are good for. Uh, so I haven't, I'm not aware of anything like that. Okay. Well, very good. Well, Frank, this has been a great call. And I, I could see you could talk about this for, for hours and days. Yes. What's the, so people should definitely get your book, Virus Sphere. It's, yeah, on, and it's uh, new, out, newly out as a paperback today, so it's cheap to buy. Okay. <laughs> Excellent. Do you, do you narrate it for Audible? Do you have an Audible version? I'm not, I, no, I don't. No, I, 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 you I'm should. going a bit dry now. I don't think I'll be any good at narration. But uh, I'm, I'm hoping the paperback is available in America. I'm not sure. But if it isn't, the hardcover is. Okay. Uh, you know. Yeah, I have the hardcover and all that. It's a it's a cool yeah. book. So, well, yeah, I appreciate yeah. you coming on, Frank. Like I said, you've got Not a lot of great info, and uh, you know it's very timely. So, thank you for being here. And I, I appreciate you having me. You've been listening to the Finding Genius podcast with Richard Jacobs. 
If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.